I'm Lisa Dale Miller, and you're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave on April 16th at Marin Sangha. This is the first of two talks on non-attachment, one of the most misunderstood and maligned Buddhist concepts. This first talk focuses primarily on the actual Buddhist teachings, what the Buddha said about clinging, grasping, and attachment, and how he envisioned non-attachment, non-clinging, and non-grasping. And I also use some of the wisdom that I've received from my own Buddhist teachers, like Ajahn Sumedho and Minji Rinpoche, to help us begin to explore what clinging and attachment actually mean for us in our daily lives. At the end of the talk, I invited the Sangha to spend the next week exploring how clinging and attachment showed up for them in their daily lives, and also to take note of the kind of reactivity and distressful responses that might occur alongside clinging and grasping. And I'm going to invite you to do the same before you listen to the second talk, which explores the practical application of how one can skillfully transform clinging in the moment as it's arising. You know, I'm teaching this week and next week, which I love to do, because then we get to really take our time, dive in, go in depth into a topic. So I decided we were going to take some time with non-attachment, that thing Buddhists love to talk about, but don't really know how to do. It's very complex. Tonight, we're going to hear from the Buddha and a couple of my favorite Buddhist teachers. So we're really going to look at what the teachings actually say about non-attachment. So I'm going to give you a little home practice on what we discussed tonight. And then next week, we're just going to do the practical application of all of this in daily life. How's that sound? Good? Okay. So here we go. First of all, what is the opposite of non-attachment? So I heard grasping. What else did I hear? Clinging. Attachment. Yes. Anything else? Yes, grasping, yes, <laughs> grasping was first. And, and so let me just say at the top of my talk, it says grasping, clinging, attachment. So you all get... We're done. That's right, we're done. Go home. Let's look at all of this, okay? Because, you know, the Buddhist teachings, especially the Four Noble Truths, say one thing, and then we are taught another thing. So we're going to just first do that discrepancy of what the Four Noble Truths say, and then why is grasping, clinging, and attachment the real problem, and why doesn't it say that in the Four Noble Truths? Because it, it actually doesn't say that. It says it uses the word tanha, or craving. Now that I've written a book, you know, I get to actually say the, these scholarly things very easily in a scholarly manner <laughs> without too much effort. The first thing I want to do is just read you a, 
paragraph and a half on tanha, or craving, because after all, the second noble truth, the first one is suffering exists, or unsatisfactoriness exists, and the second one is the cause of unsatisfactoriness is craving, and its opposite, aversion, which are basically the same thing. So craving, aversion, approach, avoidance. So let's first just know what we're talking about here, and then we'll go right into clinging and what that is, okay? Philosopher Jeremy Bentham once said that pain and pleasure govern us in all we do, in all we say, in all we think. That's a direct quote. The Buddha came to the same conclusion and one-upped Bentham by singling out three forms of craving that together comprise our biological and sometimes neurotic impulses to approach or avoid. So those are our modern words for craving and aversion, approach, avoidance. The three kinds of craving in Buddhism can best be explained in modern psychological terms. The first form is kama tanha, the drive toward pleasurable experience, which feels good in the short term, but is ultimately unsatisfactory because of its unsustainability. The second form of craving is bhava tanha, the drive to become, which implies the existence of subtle or blatant dissatisfaction with current conditions. So I have to become something else because I'm not satisfied with what I am right now. The third form of craving is vibhava tanha, the drive for non-existence, which primarily arises from intolerance of distress and ultimately reflects ignorance of the impermanent nature of phenomena. Each of these forms of tanha has the power to enslave us in a perpetual battle with life as it manifests from moment to moment. So the most important part of that description of craving was it ultimately reflects ignorance of the impermanent nature of phenomena. And this is why clinging is what we're really looking at. Because human beings have a very difficult time holding with some kind of sustainability the truth of impermanence. So we cling to all kinds of ideas and beliefs that allow us to not experience impermanence. So let's first look at, very quickly, at what clinging actually is. The Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya said, very simply, there are four clingings. Sensuality clinging, that means clinging to the experience that we have through our five senses. View clinging, that means holding on and grasping to beliefs and opinions and views. Rules and vows clinging, and that means everything that you've been conditioned by your religion, your society, your family, your nation, 
to believe. And then the fourth one is clinging to the doctrine of self, which means clinging to the notion that you have a permanent separate self. The word clinging in Pali is upadana, and it's actually derived from adana, meaning to catch hold of strongly. So it really means to grasp. And upa is added for emphasis, as if grasping wasn't enough. (laughs) The Buddha had to add upa for emphasis. We are biologically wired up to have reactivity. So you're walking down one of the paths, the many paths here in the Bay Area, up in the mountains, where we know when it gets to a certain temperature, there can be rattlesnakes out on the trail, right? So you're walking along. And in the distance, your physiology sees something that looks like a snake, and you jump. You don't even think about it. Your body jumps. That is reactivity. That's approach avoidance. It's wired up into us. There's nothing you can do about that. So clinging is you get closer to it, and you're still seeing a snake. But in fact, it's just a piece of rope but you're still seeing a snake. That's clinging. You might be thinking, well, this is impossible. If you see a rope, you see a rope. I had a patient a few months ago who had a very, very serious um, case of obsessive compulsive disorder. And when they arrived at my office, they came in and they told me this afterward. They walked in and told me this immediately. There's two ways to get up to my office. You can either take the elevator or you can walk up a flight of steps, and they're both outside. And so the flight of steps goes up like this, and the parking lot is right below. So, you know, you can see your car. So one of the OCD behaviors this patient has is not believing that she does what she actually does. The mind clings so strongly that it hasn't been done. The entire way up the staircase... She's clinging to the idea that the lights in the car are still on. Gets to the top, turns around, looks at the car, sees the lights are off, and is still completely overwhelmed by the idea that the lights are on. By this point, we already worked together for about a month, so she remembered that she could just sort of drop into her senses. She could drop her awareness into her senses and actually look, actually deliberately see. And then, it, then she got it. Oh, right, the lights are actually really off. So she came into my office to tell me how excited she was <laughs> that this actually worked because it loosened her fixation. So clinging is fixation. Let's read the Buddha and see what he said. The first little snippet that I brought you out of the Samyutta Nikaya, verse 22.7, and it's titled Grasping and Worrying. I will explain to you grasping and worrying. And also, I will explain not grasping and not worrying. The uninstructed worldling, unskilled and untrained in the Dharma, regards the body as the self. The self is having a body. The body is being in the self, or the self is being in the body. Change occurs to the body, and it becomes different. 
Because of this change and alteration in the body, the uninstructed worldling's consciousness becomes preoccupied with bodily change. Due to this preoccupation with bodily change, worried thoughts arise and persist and take a firm hold of the mind. Through this mental obsession, he becomes fearful and distressed. And being full of attachment, he is worried. He regards feeling as the self. And these feelings he's having, he believes, are the self. And his worried feelings are a change in his notion of self. But he's not recognizing the change. He's just grasping at the worrying about the fact that his body is changing. So this is how worrying and grasping arise. And how monks do grasping and worrying not arise? Here, monks, the well-instructed disciple is skilled and trained in the Dhamma does not regard the body as the self, the self as having a body, the body as being in the self, or the self as being in the body. Change occurs in the body, and it becomes different. But despite this change and alterations, his consciousness is not preoccupied with bodily change. Not being full of desire and attachment, he is not worried. In this way, monks, grasping and worrying do not arise. So what the Buddha is saying here is it's a matter of what you identify with. The body's changing. That's not different. He's not saying you're going to be in an enlightened state and you will be ever youthful and change will never come. That's not what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is saying, yes, your body will change, That is what human bodies do. And the instructed worldling, like all of you who are instructed worldlings, recognizes that this is inevitable. This is the way things are. Bodies change. And even if there is displeasure about the change in the body, it's not that you're not feeling displeasure. It's okay to feel displeasure about aging. You don't have to only feel positively about aging. Aging sucks. There are parts of it that suck, don't you think? The idea is, who's aging? What is aging? That's where you want to go, so that you cannot grasp at the idea that the body change is all you are. Is this making sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally just as simple as this. So I'll, I'm going to keep giving you examples of this from the Buddha so that it, we can flesh this out completely. This is verse 46, uh, 4, and it's actually titled Impermanent. Form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. 
Consciousness is impermanent. So what the Buddha just did there is he named the five aggregates. And for those of you who don't know, one of the insights that the Buddha had when he looked into his own mind was that all things, anything that arises, is comprised of five basic aggregates. The first is form. Frankly, even your thoughts have form. You know, thoughts, they are real. You, they have form. They may have a different kind of form than this table, but they have form. They exist. All things have form of some kind. Feeling, and in Buddhism, we don't mean emotion. What we actually mean is we mean the feeling tone of the, what arises. So that means pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's called Vedana. And it does extend itself, of course, into emotions because based on the feeling tone, we often have a reactive response to it. If it's pleasant, we go toward it and want more. If it's unpleasant, we either try to avoid it or stop it or fix it. And if it's neutral, often we can kind of just get bored, really, or not even notice it. Um, perception, everything is perception. Don't you, wouldn't you agree? I mean, the Buddha didn't have neuroscience, but we have neuroscience, and... When I say everything is perception, I don't just mean your brain. I mean you have a nervous system. So all the information that you experience comes in through your five senses, and then you cogitate about it. And that process is called perception. And even your internal perception, interoception, is perception. And everything is colored by perception. That's how two people can go through the same experience and have a completely different view of what happened. Okay, that's a very mundane way of looking at it. Volitional formations are basically your habitual impulses. That's what they mean by that. So that's your habitual ways of responding to things. And then the last thing is consciousness. And consciousness covers a whole broad range of Phenomena, but in general, it's all of the cognitive processes that happen because form is experienced, you have some feeling tone about it, then there are the perceptions, the thoughts that you make of it, and then your instinctual responses, and then consciousness is sort of everything that evolves from that point on in your experience. The Buddha is saying all of this is impermanent. And then he goes on to say, what is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Again, it's identification. The Buddha is going right back to identification. Experience form, experience your feeling tone about what's happening, experience all of the thoughts and views and perceptions that show up around what arises. Be aware of the habitual response mechanisms you have to experience. And finally, consciousness. If you're really aware, 
your consciousness will tell you this is all just phenomena and it's coming and going. There is no me there. There's no solid me that's self-existing. Yes, I'm experiencing all of these things, but I can't pick out a solid me in there. It just doesn't exist. And the Buddha continues. When one sees this as it really is with correct wisdom, and I just spoke to you what correct wisdom is, one holds no more views concerning the past. When one holds no more views concerning the past, one holds no more views concerning the future. When one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more obstinate grasping. So what he did there was he said, it's not only identification, it's how you identify yourself with the past, with what's happened before, with your thoughts about what's about to occur. So it isn't just a matter of identification. It's also misplacement of your consciousness. Your mind is not in what's happening now. Your mind is either obsessed with the past, so you are suffering, clinging around aversion to the past or craving for the past, or you're lost in your own thoughts and wanting, longing, grasping at a future that you either want or you're afraid of. This is one of the reasons why in Tibetan Buddhism, craving and aversion are actually translated as hope and fear. So the Buddha continues. When one has no more obstinate grasping, the mind becomes dispassionate towards form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. Now we're about to step, step in quicksand because he just used the word dispassion. So a lot of people, when they hear dispassion, they think ambivalence. That is a mistake. Dispassion does not have anything to do with not caring, and it has nothing to do with ambivalence. But this is one of the great misunderstandings of non-attachment often translated as detachment. How many of you ever, ever heard the word detachment used with Buddhism? Raise your hand. Yes, and that is a mistake. Detachment has nothing to do with non-grasping. Detachment means you've separated yourself from something, and as we all know, that is ignorance, because in Buddhism, we know that all things are interdependently co-arising. So there cannot be any separation. Everything is, rises simultaneously all together and there is no separation. So detachment, take it out of your vocabulary right now with, along with dissociation. That's another word that often comes up when people think of non-grasping and non-attachment. They think, okay, well, I just won't associate myself with that. I can just go and I can be above everything. This is dissociation. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about dispassion. Passion is the appropriate word. So for Buddhism, 
When they use the word passion, they mean reactivity. They don't mean the kind of passion that you have when you're interested in something or when you really deeply care about something or when you're having one of those great passionate creative moments. That's not what they're talking about. Because if people weren't passionate about what they did, believe me, we, we wouldn't get anywhere. Dispassion means you are passionate, but you are not mistaking passion as your identity. You're not clinging to the idea that whatever it is you're passionate about, that's all you are. There's the mistake, the identification. That's the mistake. So dispassion means you can be a fully invested person in this world, really caring about things, really acting in appropriate ways to make change happen. But at the same time, there's no narcissistic need to be seen doing whatever you're doing. There is another passage from the Samyutta Nikaya, which sort of talks about how to go beyond clinging, especially in terms of the five aggregates. And I have it in my book because I, I thought it was so important to really make this uh, completely apparent to people so they didn't mistake this. So I'm just going to read this to you. So what are we to do when our inborn perceptual apparatus is flawed? And we know what the flaws are. The flaws of our inborn apparatus is our reactivity. The only cure for grasping is to identify and investigate the five aggregates of clinging, otherwise known as the skandhas or the khandhas. The skandhas exemplify the process by which we assume substantiality. Form, feeling, perception, habitual responses, and the fact that we can cogitate around things, consciousness, we use these to solidify everything. This is the apparatus for our not recognizing the insubstantiality and the interdependence of all things. It's a double-edged sword. We have to have it in order to exist as a human being, but it also gets in our way of wisdom. The Buddha has this wonderful short, I guess it's sort of a poem, I would call it, to deconstruct these five skandhas. So here it is. Form is like a lump of foam, feeling like a water bubble. Perception is like a mirage, volitions like a plantain trunk, and consciousness is like an illusion. However one may ponder it and carefully investigate it, it appears but hollow and void when one views it carefully. Foam looks solid but dissolves on contact. It looks like form, but when you touch it, it dissolves. So how solid is it? Water bubbles fascinate us but are unstable and they easily burst. Try to grab a water bubble. Gone. A mirage appears real, but is no more than a perceptual magic trick. Grand trees are merely the outcome of embedded hidden roots. Illusions are deceptive, unreliable representations of reality. 
all phenomena amount to little more than the continual compounding of discrete momentary appearances. When combined, collected, appearances seem solid, attractive or repulsive, real, volitional, and of course, oh so personal. And that is why we claim, because it all feels so personal. So the Buddha continues, by being liberated, it is steady. By being steady, it is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one understands and attains nirvana. Nibbana or nirvana is non-grasping. Freedom from clinging to false notions of self and form. So I thought that I would read you one more passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, and this is going to sort of ground it a little more in our practical, average, daily life. And the Buddha was actually really good at doing that. So this is verse 845. It's called The Vicissitudes of Life. Some of you may have heard this verse before. It's quite well known. There are eight worldly conditions, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. These eight worldly concerns keep the world turning around. When an uninstructed worldling comes upon these eight worldly concerns, she does not reflect on them thusly. These conditions are impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change. With such a person, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, keep her mind engrossed. When pleasurable experiences come, she is elated, and when displeasurable experiences come, she is dejected. Thus, being thus involved in likes and dislikes, she is bound by suffering. But when an instructed disciple comes upon these eight worldly concerns, she reflects upon them thusly. These conditions are impermanent. They are bound up with suffering, and they are subject to change. She understands all these things as they really are, and they do not engross her mind. Thus, she will not be elated by pleasurable experiences or dejected by displeasurable experiences. Having thus renounced clinging to likes and dislikes, she is freed from suffering. The mindful wise one discerns experience well, observant of their alterations. Pleasant things do not stir her mind, and she is not annoyed by the unpleasant. Aware now of the stainless, griefless state, she is fully aware and gone beyond suffering. So in this case, what the Buddha is pointing to are very mundane experiences that we all have in life. Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. And essentially what the Buddha is saying is, Clinging only happens when people do not recognize that these conditions come and go. 
And they become very excited when the good conditions are there and very upset either when they're no longer there or when the opposite shows up. It's that alone, that unrecognizing of the nature of the way things are. And the Buddha even used that wordage as things really are. This is what causes us to cling. We just want things to be the way we want them. And we will do anything in our mind to convince ourselves that that is the way they should be. And then, of course, life shows up the way life shows up, and we suffer. And this is clinging. So I I wanted to allow my teachers to elaborate a little bit, because I think they do such a better job than I could ever do. I have a quote here from Ajahn Sumedho, who is no longer teaching. He's retired, and he deserves to be retired. He has to be in his mid-70s by now. But he was just an absolutely incredible Theravada Buddhist teacher. And he uses the example of insight meditation itself. So this is him critiquing how we practice insight meditation, how we view it. In insight meditation, we use impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self as a way of not giving importance to the quality of our experiences. A lot of people who practice insight meditation, however, just seem to take the words and project them onto experience and then bind themselves to the idea of it rather than trusting themselves to be fully aware of impermanence as it happens. People who are meditating, doing insight meditation, they're solidifying and codifying and reifying impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self as something they should be. They're taking it on as an identity instead of just simply opening up and recognizing the flow of experience, which is continually shifting and has its moments of satisfactoriness and unsatisfactoriness, and always shows us, especially if you turn your awareness to your own mind, it becomes very quickly, you can see very quickly, the thing you call you is just a continual shifting landscape of thoughts and feelings and all kinds of responses. So he's saying, just Look, just simply be natural and become aware of what actually is occurring. And he continues, whatever position you take, grasping binds you to that particular view. And that binding, that attachment to a view, creates division. Then you always feel this sense of having to do something or get something or develop or cultivate something. That's that bhavatana. There's an incapacity to just be an experience because we're always grasping at the idea that we have to make experience happen. We are the master controller. It's just an illusion, trust me. Experience will happen with or without you, I assure you. It's another way to really recognize not-self is to just remind yourself 
it's all happening without me. It just doesn't need me, frankly. And see that in reality. Okay, another one of my teachers, Minja Rinpoche, who is a Mahamudra teacher, has a wonderful section in his book, The Joy of Living. And this is about letting go of grasping. So we know what grasping is now. How do we let go of our clinging and grasping? So here's his advice. See if you can connect to grasping as the cause of discontent. You are grasping onto an idea or a fantasy of who you are or of what you want. And this grasping prevents you from relating to things as they are. So that's important. He's not only saying, okay, open up, do some inquiry, get to know how you cling, get to know the things you cling to, the views you cling to, the ways of perceiving yourself that you cling to, your likes, your dislikes, get to know it, see it all happening in real time. When it's happening, see if you can discern how it's getting in the way of your just being able to enjoy experience itself. And I truly mean enjoy even something that isn't pleasurable. We can open up to something that is not pleasurable. Instead of getting tight and grasping at, I don't want this, I don't like this, we can just open up, especially something we can't change. Like, for instance, you're traveling to a foreign country and you have to go get shots. You can't not get those shots. You've got to get them because the country won't let you in without your shots. And then so you have to go to the doctor. And you have to, especially, there are certain shots which really are painful. You can't do anything about it. You want to go to a foreign country. Okay, you can get really tight and you can really grasp and you can physiologically grip all of your muscles and you can tighten up against the shot. Or you could just go in there and you can just say, all right, you know what? I think I'm just gonna take a breath and what I'm going to do is maybe just look at something else and I'm going to allow the shot to occur. It's still going to be painful, but you won't be all tight and you won't be resisting it. And therefore, you won't be suffering around the shot. You won't be clinging to the idea that you shouldn't be there having a shot when you need to have one. I mean, it, this is so mundane, but this is how we cling and grasp. This is me giving you this home practice, sort of, in a very colloquial way, because I am going to ask you to go notice clinging over the next week. So Minjir Rinpoche continues. The reverse of grasping too tightly is being too loose. You might think, nothing matters, so why bother to do anything meaningful? There is so much grasping in relationships, and they fall apart. I will not try. Sooner or later, I'm going to die, so what is the difference? This view reflects the confused assumption that our grasping and habitual patterns are innate and unchangeable, and therefore any effort to liberate them, ourselves from them is hopeless. So you don't want to go to that place. You don't want to go to ambivalence. You don't want to go to not caring. You don't want to go to, okay, all the good things in life, they're going to cause me suffering because they're, all, they're not going to stay, so why should I have any of them? This is not the middle way. And the Buddha was very clear, 
asceticism and hedonism. Neither of these work. There is a middle way, and that is awareness. Being in your experience and knowing it as it actually is. To extend this just a bit more, because I think it's very important when we talk about clinging, to really pay attention and not get lost in ambivalence. Or not say, okay, well, I'm going to let go of my desire. It's very important that we have desire. Nothing happens for human beings without desire. And Ajahn Sumedha was very clear. I know I've said this here before. Desire is not the problem. I have a section in my book on this very topic, on desire, and how desire is not the problem. Desire and clinging are not the same thing. You have to have desire to exist. I was so adamant about getting this right. For the book, I interviewed Stephen Batchelor, and one of the parts of the interview that he and I did was on this topic, why is desire not craving or clinging? So here's what Stephen had to say. Existentially, craving is just a modality of desire. Desire, if you get to the root of it, is the state we find ourselves in when we recognize a circumstance in which we wish for improvement. Craving is a desire that doesn't work. Now that's really important. Craving is a desire that doesn't work. It's a desire, but desire is not the problem. It's a desire that doesn't work, that will never work. It's a gratification or solution that is bound to fail because of craving's cognitive distortions. When we're craving or we're averse to something, we are not recognizing the way things are. The mind is tight and it's clinging and it's distorted. And therefore, we're no longer in desire. We are just in our response to craving and aversion. We've lost the desire now. My sense is that the real problem with craving is that it blocks us from blossoming and flourishing as humans. Egoism and self-image are problematic because they render life static, incapable of movement and growth because we are caught in habitual patterns. Samsara. That is the nature of samsara right there. When you do your home practice during the week, I do not want you to think that when you have a desire to go get ice cream, <laughs> that you are suddenly clinging. No, you're having a desire for ice cream. Now let's say that you shouldn't be eating ice cream. Let's say you have a desire for ice cream, but ice cream is one of the things you should not be eating. Maybe you're lactose intolerant, but boy, ice cream would be so good right now. And there is no way that I would be happy if I didn't have ice cream. That's clinging. Okay, so desire looks like this. Oh, I'd love to have some ice cream right now. Yeah, but I don't know. Ice cream doesn't agree with my stomach. Okay, so clearly, let me look and see what's really happening here. Well, actually, I, I kind of like to treat myself to something. Oh, okay, so it's not about the ice cream. It's actually, I'd like to treat myself to something. Okay, what's that about? I don't know. I just would really like to have something that tastes good. Okay, let's look in the refrigerator and see what's there. Let's get something that's not going to make your stomach sick. I'm sure there's lots of stuff in there, and I'll go get something that's fine. Okay, that's one way it's going to go. You're not clinging anymore. You're just 
following your desire with insight. Okay, so maybe you get to that point and you say, hmm, I'd love to have ice cream. Yes, well, I need something right now because I'm not feeling really good and this is going to make me feel better. Okay, now you're in clinging and craving and you've completely lost desire. But what is the desire? The desire is, I don't feel so good and I need to do something for myself. Well, ice cream's not going to kick it, right? So maybe that's a moment as a practitioner where you say to yourself, you know, maybe what I should really do is sit down and do a little metta practice. And maybe I'm not feeling so good because actually I didn't treat someone very well today. So maybe I should do some metta practice for that person. And then maybe what I should do is do a little insight practice to look more deeply at what happened for me, how I got lost in my reactivity or whatever it was. So at no point in this trajectory are you clinging. What you're doing is you're seeing things as they are. Because Earth Day is coming on Wednesday. And of course, we cannot be ambivalent about climate change. If there's anyone in the world who practices the Buddhist path and is an activist, it's Bhikkhu Bodhi. So here's what he says. The Buddha takes up the task of promoting the true good, welfare, and happiness of the world. And of course, this means that it's our job to take up the task of promoting the true good, welfare, and happiness of the world. He does so by teaching how to live in accordance with the teachings and behave in such a way that others can realize the same liberation he found through his own awakening. The Pali Suttas elucidate three types of benefit that the Buddha's teachings promote. The most important benefit is promoting the welfare and happiness which is directly visible in this life and attained by fulfilling one's moral commitments and social responsibilities. That's the most important type of benefit of practicing the Buddhist teachings, according to the Buddha, is promoting welfare and happiness, which is directly visible in this life and attained by fulfilling one's moral commitments and social responsibilities. So when we wisely recognize our moral commitments and social responsibilities, and we decide that we are going to be responsible in this world, we are not clinging. What we are doing is we are deliberately committing ourselves to the being an agent of the welfare and happiness of all beings. <clears throat> so that's not clinging. That is desire. And we need to have that desire. And we need to be able to carry it out in the way that the Buddhist teachings tell us to, with mindfulness, with wisdom, knowing things as they are, not mistaking things so that we end up clinging to false notions of what our moral responsibilities are. We know them wisely. And of course, acting from the deep compassion that comes from right action. 
So I'm going to invite each of you to go throughout your life this week and investigate how grasping and non-grasping shows up in your life, in your daily activity. And when you come back next week, we will dialogue. We'll get to hear all the experiences you all had and we'll get to hear all the wisdom you had. And of course, we'll also get to hear all of the difficult moments and the places where we stumbled. But of course, that's how we learn and how we become wise. Thank you for your kind attention tonight.